so good morning. My name is Kindy DeLong, and um, this is a class on men and women sharing leadership in the church. Uh, so that is what we're going to be doing for three days, every day at 8.30. So thank you for being here. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about my, myself and my journey as I'm getting started this morning. Um, I started studying this topic in 1988. It's one of the reasons that I got interested in studying the Bible academically, and I ended up getting a PhD in Christianity and Judaism and Antiquity, focusing on the New Testament. And so I teach here at Pepperdine. I'm a professor of religion. I teach mostly New Testament classes. Um, and I also teach periodically a class on women in the early church. So some of what we're doing in this class comes out of that academic class that I do here at Pepperdine, but not all of it. I developed this talk because I had so many people say to me something along these lines. I would really like to see women involved as spiritual leaders in our churches, but I get hung up on some passages in Paul. I don't know how to put the whole picture together and understand how this can work. Um, I developed this talk because I heard people say things like, the church across town is making some changes with regard to women. Uh, and how women are involved in church, and, and it just seems to me like they're abandoning the Bible. Um, so what my goal is in this talk is to share with people a big picture of scripture related to gifts and leadership. And it's really not, my goal is not really to convince anyone who has a very different view. It's rather to take a walk through scripture together and chart a kind of interpretive path. It's the path that I use. It's a path that um, I want to share with others. Whenever we read scripture, we interpret scripture. We take a path. We choose where we're going to start and what we will read next. We decide what we're going to focus on. We decide how we're going to read. This is unavoidable. We do it every time that we read scripture and seek to apply it to our lives. And sometimes I'll hear people say something like this. Um, well, I just follow scripture. As if scripture were a traffic light, right? As if we were just sitting there in the road, staring at the traffic light, waiting for it to turn a certain color. But scripture isn't a traffic light. God, in God's wisdom, gave us something far more complex and beautiful. God gave us a story. It's a story that draws us in, that we walk through, and we make decisions as we go. And where we start in the story, the turns we take, where we slow down and pay attention, and where we speed up makes a difference. So today, I want to offer a path through this story of scripture. And I want to point out, it's a scriptural path, not the scriptural path, as in the one and only scriptural path, a path. There are other paths. This is the path that I take through scripture after a lot of prayer and contemplation and study. And I'm offering it in this three-day class, not with the intention of imposing it on anyone. In fact, I would really like this space to be a space of open conversation. I'm offering it simply as my perspective. From my point of view, the path that I'm going to take through scripture in the next three days takes us most fully through the heart of our shared life together as followers of Christ. 
and that's why I'm excited to share it. But you certainly don't have to agree. Before we get started, I want to say a couple of things about what my topic is not. So my topic today is not the women's issue, as it is sometimes called. <laughs> it is not even exactly gender in scripture, although we are going to be talking a lot about that. So the topic that I'm interested in this week is our shared life together as human beings, created in the image of God and redeemed in Christ, and how we live that out with regard to leadership in the church. Now, I said a path, we make decisions, right, about where we start. Um, and I am convinced that where we start on this path makes a huge difference as to where we end up. So where are we going to begin? Um, now, I assume that everyone here today knows that there are a handful of short passages in the New Testament letters that, at first glance, seem to exclude women from aspects of leadership in the church. I assume everyone, that's not news to anyone. <laughs> and this is how they have been interpreted. If we start with those passages, we end up taking a very different path through scripture than the one I am going to map out today. If we start there, in my view, as the old saying goes, we find it hard to see the forest for the trees. So I'm going to start somewhere else. And since we're going to be covering a lot of territory in the next three days, I want to use a metaphor to try and hold everything together. And this metaphor I've kind of already hinted at, it's the idea of a landscape. I want us to think about scripture as a landscape. So I would just invite you to imagine, if you would, that you're getting ready to walk through a forest, a verdant, lush forest. It has trees and all sorts of other kinds of plants. I don't want to start with the micro. I don't want to walk into this forest and start looking at the little plants. I want to start with the macro. Not even the trees, but the forest itself. And that's where we're going to go. So um, well, we're going to the forest. So what is the forest? In my view of scripture, the big picture of scripture, the forest as I'm calling it, is that women are fully human, created in the image of God, in mutual partnership with men, loved by God and redeemed by Christ as distinct human beings, gifted by the Spirit with gifts of ministry and leadership, and called to serve the community of Christ with these gifts. That's the forest in my view. So let's head into it, and like I said, where we begin is important. Let's start with creation. So we're going to go to, you can see on the right here, we're going to go to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. After we do that, we're going to look at God's interaction with women in the Old Testament, Jesus' interaction with women in the New Testament, and then what this forest looks like when we get to the early church. Genesis 1 through 2, I mean 127. God created humankind. Oh, sorry, i got to click again. Uh, so what the point is that we're going to, as we look at Genesis, is that male and female are created together in the image of God. So Genesis 1.27, you can see that there's some parallelism in this verse, so let me read it. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So as you can see here, the phrase male and female is very carefully set in parallel with the phrase image of God. 
Male and female and humanity are also equated as the subject of God's creation. So if you look at the single underlining, you see created, created, created in every line. You see that? So you have kind of like an A, B, B, A, B, A pattern. So there's this parallelism with created. And the double underlining, you can see a parallelism as well. Image, image, male and female. So what does this tell us? It tells us two things. First, as male and female, we are primarily humans and only secondarily male and female. God did not create males and females as distinct groups or categories. God created humanity in God's image. This is important because it means that humanity is not male with female as an afterthought mistake or secondary formation. It means that women are fully human. Second, it tells us something about the image of God. As reflected in humanity, male and female together bear this image. The image of God is not found in males alone or in females alone, but simply in human beings together. And then God says, this is very good. I don't want to rush too quickly past this point because it is so foundational to the journey I'm taking today. Men are fully human. Women are fully human. This is the forest. I like what um, a person named Dorothy Sayers has to say about this point. If you don't know who Dorothy Sayers is, she was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford in 1915. She actually finished her studies earlier than that, but women weren't allowed to graduate from Oxford when she finished, so she had to wait until the rule was changed, and then she graduated in 1915. She went on to become a respected scholar and theologian and playwright and lecturer and author. And in 1938, Dorothy Sayers gave a lecture with this provocative title. The lecture was titled, Are Women Human? <laughs> She was a theologian, but this particular lecture wasn't about theology per se, at, but rather, at that time, women were starting to enter fields in the secular world that had been reserved for men. This is 1938, right? And in this lecture, Dorothy Sayers observes that the people of the day talk about women's role in society in this way. They would ask questions like this. What ought women do? How should women act? What kind of jobs are women suited for? What do women want? But to Sayers, questions like these revealed a really flawed thinking. Because women are not a class of beings, but fully human beings with individual ideas, perspectives, inclination, training, and talents. She then talks about her experience as one of the very few female students at Oxford, and I'm going to quote her now. Her language is a little old-fashioned, but I think you'll get the point. She says, when the pioneers of university training for women demanded that women should be admitted to the universities, the cry went up at once, why should women want to know about Aristotle? The answer is not that all women would be better for knowing about Aristotle, but rather that what women want as a class is irrelevant. I want to know about Aristotle. <laughs> it is true that most women care nothing about him, and a great many male undergraduates turn pale and faint at the thought of him. But I, eccentric individual that I am, do want to know about Aristotle, and I submit that there is nothing in my shape or bodily functions which need prevent my knowing about him. <laughs> Sayers has a sense of humor. <laughs> she doesn't mention Genesis 1 anymore. 
but she is a theologian, and I believe she's reflecting the view of Genesis 1. The reality is that women, and men of course too, are first and foremost human beings, and only secondarily men and women. Now, I don't mean to suggest that gender is not an important part of our lived experience as human beings. It is a significant part of the way that we experience the world. But that's quite a different thing than saying that men and women are created as distinct classes of human beings. And I believe that Genesis 1 says that we are not. And this point is particularly important as we take this walk through the forest. So let's pause for a minute and really appreciate its significance. Let's let it sink in. And one way to do that is to remember that this picture in Genesis of men and women together as fully human was actually not the norm in the ancient world. So the norm was quite different. For example, let's look at the Greek side of the world and take a look at Plato. When Plato writes about the creation of gender in around 360 BC, he describes men as beings who are created from the stars. If they live virtuously, they will return to the stars. However, if men fail to live virtuously, if they are cowardly or immoral, they might find themselves reincarnated as Women, yes. <laughs> and if they fall short again, then they will return as animals in a downward spiral until they cease to exist. In other words, Plato views women as an inferior kind of incarnation. As flawed men, women are not fully human in the biblical sense, nor are they very good. Plato's philosophy and other perspectives like it, which is just one example, had consequences for real women in the ancient world. The logic goes something like this. If women are not fully human nor good, then obviously they do not have the same capacity to lead as men. So since Dorothy Sayers mentioned our friend Aristotle, let's look at Aristotle. He's just a uh, generation after Plato. And Aristotle, in one of his works, says... Hence, there are by nature various classes of rulers and ruled. For the free rules the slave, the male the female, and the man the child in a different way. All possess the various parts of the soul, but possess them in different ways. For the slave has not got the deliberative part at all, and the female has it, but without full authority. While a child, and by this he means free male child, has it, but in an undeveloped form. So you see there, in Aristotle's view, only free grown men are human in the fullest sense. Notice that their right to rule or have authority over others in this hierarchy, slaves, women, and children, comes from the view that slaves, women, and children are not fully human. Thus, it makes sense that free men, the only ones who have the full authoritative measure of the soul, rule over slaves, women, and children. But this is not how the scriptural story begins. Genesis starts our journey by making it clear. Let's go back. That humans, all of us, bear the image of God. The views of hierarchy and reduced humanity that we see in Plato and Aristotle are not the forest of scripture. Genesis 1 is the forest. Women are fully human, created in, with men in the image of God. 
But someone might say, what about Genesis 2? Right? Because we have another part of the creation story. And some Christians have said that because woman is created from man, out of man, this suggests authority or hierarchy. And some have said that when the woman is described as a helper suitable, this shows her helping role. Have any of you ever heard those arguments? Okay, make sure we're on the same page. <laughs> in other words, some have seen in Genesis 2 a principle of male headship or male leadership. Now, you can walk through scripture this way. But to walk through the landscape of scripture this way, I think it's necessary to do two things. First, you need to read Genesis 2 apart from Genesis 1. Second, you need to read Genesis 2 looking for differences between men and women and looking for male leadership. But if we take our clue from Genesis 1 and we read Genesis 2 in light of Genesis 1, looking for the full shared humanity of men and women together, I think we find it. So let's take a look. Uh, so... What I see in Genesis 2 is that men and women are created for mutual partnership without hierarchy. So let's look at the story, what happens. Um, in the story, as you know, God creates uh, Adam, a human being, from the earth, the ground, the soil. In Hebrew, the word is Adama. So you can see a kind of word play there, right? Adam comes from Adama. But the problem after this happens, is that Adam is by himself. He's alone. The animals are there, but there's no one, no companion for him, no one like him. And so, God creates from Adam two separate, part, or two parts of humanity, Ish and Isha, right? So Ish and Isha, that's male and female, from Adam. And the Isha, the woman, is described as a suitable helper, and I'm using the NIV translation there. So that's the basic story. Oh, um, I could probably make these available to people who want them. We can talk about that after. So yeah, but, yeah, I, I think I should be able to. Um, okay, so let's look at the two ways that um, people have seen a kind of hierarchy in the story. So the first one is order. Does the order of creation mean that, there, that man has authority over woman? Because, right, Isha, woman, comes from man. So the argument goes that because Isha comes from Ish, the, the woman comes from the man, the man has authority over her, right? I think some of you said you've heard this argument before. But if we were following that same logic with the earth and Adam, then by that same logic, because Adam comes from the earth, that the earth would have authority over humans. But of course, the story tells us precisely the opposite. Right? So that logic doesn't really make sense. This line of thinking doesn't make sense as we read the story. Rather, I think you have something more like this that the story is emphasizing the relationship between the various parts of creation. We, human beings, are in relationship with the soil, with the ground, with the earth. And we, human beings, 
Isha and Isha, male and female, are in relationship with each other. So the point of the story is not hierarchy or authority, but relationship. Okay, what about the second point? The second point is that the woman is created as a suitable helper. So Genesis 2.20 says that none of the animals are suitable helpers for the lone human, but the woman is. The Hebrew phrase for this suitable helper is Eitzer Kenegdo. It's translated suitable helper or helper corresponding to him. Now, the Kenegdo part, corresponding to, is a very reasonable translation, corresponding to. The Eitzer part, however, is really quite lacking, as translations go, to translate it as helper. So let's look at Eitzer for a minute. When we look at the word Eitzer, in the Hebrew scriptures as a whole, it always means powerful, strong help. Like the help of a warrior who saves the day, or of God who rescues. So just to give you one example, Psalm 33:20, Our soul waits for the Lord. God is our help and shield. Eitzer. It's that kind of help that we're talking about. In fact, without Kenegdo, without the corresponding to, you would actually read the story and think that the woman is more powerful than the man. You need the Kenegdo to understand that this is a partner in strength. And so one translation I've seen that really captures it is warrior partner. She is his, if you don't like the militaristic sounding tone of that, then we could say strong partner. She is his strong partner. Uh, this is also in the context of the animals, and it says that you know, the animals were not a partner. So another way to translate it would be, no one was yet found who had sufficient strength to be his partner. I don't know about you, but I find this to be a beautiful picture of male-female partnership. I am my husband's strong partner, and he is mine. It doesn't mean that each of us is always strong at every moment, but overall, we're a matched set, making our way through the world together by sharing our strengths with each other, and not just in marriage, but in any sort of partnership between men and women, we can see each other as our aids are connected. For example, in a ministry team of men and women, we are each other's strong partners. I have a question. So, um, I appreciate that, and what we're going to do is have questions at the end. So we're going to go through, and then we'll all open it up for questions. So thank you. All right, so in the story, the man recognizes this mutuality and this partnership. When he sees the woman, he cries out, At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one is called Isha because from Ish this one was taken. So you have this recognition of this wonderful picture of mutuality among humans that lines up perfectly with Genesis 1. We are strong partners bound together by common origin creation and shared identity of God's image. Okay, so let's go back out here and see where we're going next. We might say then, what about Genesis 3? And yes, in Genesis 3, things fall apart. When sin enters the world, this beautiful picture of mutuality and partnership gets seriously messed up. How does it get messed up? 
shame. The relationship with God changes. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Blame. The relationship between humans changes. She gave me the fruit. The woman you gave me. Um, And damaged relationships across the board. So, for example, with God, the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. The relationship between the ground and humans is damaged. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And the relationship between male and female is damaged. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Or another way to translate this might be, your desire will be to have authority over your husband, but he will rule over you. It's a description of a power struggle. So yes, after sin enters the world, things fall apart. The mutuality and partnership we see in Genesis 2 gets messed up. There's blaming and dissension, and there's anticipation of this power struggle between men and women. These are the effects of sin in our world. But praise God, Jesus is vanquishing sin and overturning its effects. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. (laughs) Because before we go to Jesus, I want to look at God's interaction with women in the Old Testament. So I, when I look at the Old Testament, in light of this forest of scripture, what I see is that God interacts with women as fully human in the pages of the Old Testament. God cares for female characters, hears and answers their prayers. God notices and values women in the story. God makes a covenant and seeks a committed relationship with both men and women in Israel. For example, let's look at some of these names, which I'm sure you're familiar with. The Lord finds it crucial that not only Abraham, but also Sarah understands and accepts the divine promise. One of the longest direct communications from God to any character in Genesis is the angelic speech to Hagar. At the beginning of Exodus, God notices and celebrates the bravery and faithfulness of the two female midwives. As the Hebrews leave Egypt and enter the land, numerous women play important roles in the story. Miriam, Pharaoh's daughters, Zipporah, Rahab, Deborah, Samson's mother, and Hannah. In the wilderness, God chooses and calls uh, and makes a covenant not only with the sons, but also the daughters of Israel. So here in this passage, Both men and women are being called to contribute to the building of the tabernacle. All who are skillful among you. All the Israelite men and women contributed to the building of the tabernacle. You may have heard of something called a Nazarite vow. We often think of that as something that men did, but actually men and women were called to this in the pages of the the Old Testament. When the people arrive in the land, Moses convenes all of Israel, men and women, and gives God's instructions and statutes to all of them. Moses' words make clear that God desires worship from all people, 
free men and women, children and male and female slaves. And at the end of Deuteronomy, men and women are assembled to affirm their commitment to God. And later, men and women are both held accountable for this covenant. So in my view, these examples are completely in keeping with the forest of scripture, that women are fully human and God interacts with them as human beings and not distinctly as women. And I would say that we see the same pattern continue in the New Testament. So let's then move to Jesus' interaction with women. Jesus interacts directly with women as human beings, valuing them as disciples, and God entrusts the testimony of Jesus' empty tomb to women. Let's, let's zoom in on that a little bit. So, values. Um, Jesus values women. For example, you know the famous story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, um, and Jesus speaks with her. He openly speaks with her, even though some of his contemporaries consider such actions kind of scandalous. So, for example, his disciples say, that, or it says that the disciples were astonished, the male disciples, that Jesus was speaking with a woman. Right? But they don't question Jesus, probably because they you know, realize that's maybe not the best thing to do. Right? Um, and also, Jesus has female disciples and supporters. Uh, and so there's lots of passages that we could look at, but I'm just giving a few examples. So, for example, in Luke 8, 1 through 3, you have the 12 with Jesus, and verse 2, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their resources. So you have not only a group of men who are Jesus' disciples and traveling around with him, but also a group of women. Jesus also disciples or teaches the women that are part of his ministry. So, for example, the famous story of Mary and Martha, right? Um, that Mary sits at the Lord's feet and listens to what he was saying. And actually, if we look forward, so you probably know that the Gospel of Luke and the story continues in Acts. They're both written by the same author, Luke. And uh, we see the same group of women, and uh, I'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow, but we see the same group of women in, in the, the early stages of Acts, that they are with the uh, male disciples, constantly devoting themselves to prayer, uh, including women, certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. So uh, what Luke does is he kind of traces the story of these women all the way through Pentecost, but we'll talk more about that tomorrow. So he not only values and teaches these women, but he, but God entrusts the story of Jesus' empty tomb to women. Um, and I think this really is an important point to not overlook. In the final pages of all four Gospels, God reveals the empty tomb to women and gives them the responsibility of attesting to what they have seen. Arguably the most important historical reality of our Christian faith. He trusts their testimony about this absolutely crucial part of the story. Um, and so what I see in the pages of the Gospels with Jesus is perfectly in keeping with what we see previously um, in this forest of scripture, that God values women and has created women as fully human beings and it interacts with them. 
um, with, according to that value. Okay, so let's continue then with the early church, and this is the last section today. So the, what I see in the pages of Scripture when we look at the early church is the same pattern continues. Um, that God redeems women and fills them with the Spirit who gives women leadership gifts. So let's go to Acts 2. Um, you probably remember what happens in Acts 2, right? We have men and women gathered, waiting. Jesus has promised something is going to happen. They're waiting for it. And suddenly, um, the, the rush of the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they experience speaking in tongues. Uh, and they're trying to figure out what is going on, right? This is a brand new experience. And so Peter gets up, and he offers a speech where he says that what is happening is fulfilling a prophecy from Joel, right? And so let's read that. In the last day, this is the prophecy from Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon not classes of people, but all flesh. Perfectly in keeping with what we saw in Genesis. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And that's what's happening on the pages of Acts 2. In Acts 2, all of these people are Jews. But later, we'll see that the Holy Spirit will pour out in the same way on Gentiles. And so here, Peter is quoting the prophet Joel and interpreting what happens with the Holy Spirit as a kind of boundary-breaking, all-inclusive arrival of the Spirit and a sign that God's redemption has arrived. Male and female, slave and free, young and old, and ultimately Jew and Gentile. We see this reflected in the pages of Paul's letters, when he writes to the Galatians that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. What was damaged and disrupted in Genesis 3 is healed in the community of Christ. Now, does this mean that we are not literally male or female, or literally not Jew or Gentile? Obviously not, right? Instead, Paul is recognizing that the, there, are, there are these forces in the world, in our lived experience, that push us to identify people first by class or group. But these forces are not operative in Christ. In Christ, we are primarily humans. We are one, created together by God and redeemed together in Christ. Now, I don't mean to say that ethnicity or gender or social station play no part in our lives, or that they should be ignored. These identities are a significant part of who we are, and especially should not be ignored in a world filled with division and inequality. The early church did not ignore these realities either. That's precisely what Paul is saying here in Galatians. The Gentiles will become followers of Jesus as Gentiles. 
right? We're not going to ignore the fact that their reality is that they are Gentiles, but they don't have to become Jews. They're being brought in as Gentiles. Both Jewish and Gentile ethnic identity are valued as lived experience on the pages of the New Testament, and Paul recognizes that women and slaves have different social realities in society than do free men. But these classes of people have no ultimate reality in Christ. Another way of putting this is that their identity in Christ is of a higher order than these social identities. Galatians 3.28 reminds us that first and foremost, we are simply human beings, created in the image of God as humans and redeemed as humans by Christ. The church is a place that celebrates the mutuality and partnership of human beings. This is the forest. One more part of the forest I want to explore and then we'll break for questions. There are four places in the New Testament letters that describe Christian servant leadership through the lens of spiritual gifts. This is Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, 12, 12, 4, 4. I owe this to a friend of mine, Andy Wall. He preached a sermon on this, and he noticed this kind of fun pattern, R-C-E-P, 12, 12, 4, 4, if you want to remember that. So that's what the little codes are up there at the top. So these passages say things like this. So I'm just going to read a few quotes from them. You have gifts that differ according to the grace given to them, not according to classes of people. There are a variety of gifts, but they come from the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. You receive these gifts for the common good of the community and for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. These passages then list specific gifts, and all of the lists include activities that would fall into the category of Christian leadership. So let's look at these leadership gifts. Ministry and pastoring, prophecy, teaching, Exhortation, or preaching, what we might call today preaching. Leading, managing. Speaking wisdom and knowledge. Evangelism. Being apostles. Discernment of spirits. Together, these four passages paint an inspiring picture of servant leadership in the community of Christ. We are one body of humans in Christ, serving with the gifts given by the Spirit as the Spirit chooses it's important to recognize there is not a hint in any of these passages of a great continental divide of leadership gifts according to gender. The way the Greek language works, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to write in a gender-neutral way about people. But these passages come about as close as you can. In Romans, Paul is addressing his letter to all who are in Rome. When you get to chapter 12 in the gifts passage, nothing changes. The passages about gifts of leadership are also addressed to women in the community. In 1 Corinthians, he uses this language, God who activates all of them in everyone to each is given. They are activated by the Spirit who allots to each one individually just as the Spirit chooses. In Ephesians, but each of us is given. He gave gifts to his people. The word people in Greek is a very inclusive word, santhropos. 
Serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. All, everyone, each one, brothers and sisters, people, whomever, lots of words like that. In Greek, like I said, it's so hard to speak in a gender neutral way, but if you're going to do it, these are the words. And in addition, Paul uses a string of participles, turning verbs into nouns for the words like teacher, exhorter, and leader. And this is another way of being as gender neutral as possible in Greek. Now, translations of the Bible do not always capture this, unfortunately. So uh, you can see up here on the left, you have the NRSV, and you can see that these words are translated in the spirit of the original, teacher, exhorter, leader, etc. Um, the old NIV, this has been corrected with the 2011 NIV, but if you have an NIV that was before 2011, you see that um, gender has been injected into the passage in English in a way that it's not there um, in Greek. A man's gift, him, 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 right? None of that is there in Greek. Um, well, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, you have uh, brothers and sisters, adelphoi, which is an inclusive word in Greek, but if you translate it as brothers, it sounds more masculine in, in um, English. So brothers and sisters is a better translation. And then notice in verse 6, giving gifts to all men, but the word men is not there in the passage. It's just all. So we do have to pay attention to translations because sometimes the translations can miss uh, these realities. So I want to zoom back out to the forest and look at what we've seen today. Um, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the way God interacts with people in the Old Testament, or with women in the Old Testament, the way Jesus interacts with women in the New Testament. And then these um, wonderful statements of the early church, proclamation of mutuality, and then a picture of giftedness um, and leadership that comes out of gifts. These four leadership passages are exactly in keeping with what we've seen from the forest of scripture so far. Um, the gifts are not given to classes of people, but to individuals as the Spirit chooses. Paul does not describe these gifts as divided because God did not create humans as divided. God creates, created us, sees us, interacts with us, saves us, and gifts us as human beings, not as classes of human beings. To put all of this another way, my point is that in the forest of scripture, there is no theological principle of male leadership. Now tomorrow, what we're gonna do is we're going to look at the trees. And the way that I have constructed this metaphor, the trees will be women in the Old Testament and the New Testament who flourish in the forest I've just described, who use their gifts in service of God's people, and there are a lot of them. But sometimes we haven't always noticed them. So tomorrow we're going to spend some time looking at them and noticing them. And then on Friday, we are going to turn to the passages in Paul that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. In my metaphor, I'm try I tried to think, what, what is a good metaphor? I decided on mushrooms. <laughs> because mushrooms require careful investigation. 
If you are in a forest and you pick mushrooms without knowing what you're doing, you can get in a lot of trouble. But if you pay close attention to them, they can be tasty and healthy. So that's my metaphor. Um, all right, so, uh, so that's where we're going. Um, I do want, I save some time for questions and conversation. I really, as I said at the beginning, I want this to be a space for open conversation and listening, and questions will be taken in that spirit. But keep in mind that we do have two days to go. And I've already shared with you where we're going. So I would appreciate questions that focus on what, what we did today and, and kind of what we're looking at today. And please be with, if you wish, <laughs> be here tomorrow and the next day. And we'll have space for conversation on those days too. So thank you and questions. Yes? Uh, what I'm hearing now by uh, a lot of evangelicals is that it's true that women are equal, but their roles are different. Uh, in other words, uh, they, they're teaching that, uh, uh, in essence, man and woman are equal, but a man has his role and a woman has her role. That doesn't mean that they're not equal. Uh, this is from uh, uh, John Piper and other things you've heard about. Mm -hmm. How would you address that? Yeah, so the question for, for those who can hear it is about, um, isn't it possible to say, and some people are saying today, that uh, men and women are equal, um, but they have different roles. So to make that case, you have to walk through scripture a little differently than what I just did. Right? You don't start with Genesis. You start with a couple of passages in Paul, and you read, you, you read those passages to say they teach a, a principle of male leadership, male spiritual leadership. So first you make some, some decisions about how you're going to read those passages. And then you reflect that back onto everything that I just did. Right? Um, that's a way to walk through scripture. I am offering something different. Um, that perspective is called, often called complementarianism. Um, and the, personally, what I'm offering today, I see more internal logic. Right? I think it's more logical to say that there are different roles the way Aristotle does. There are different roles because women are not fully human than to affirm full humanity. And, and, but anyway, we can talk more about that on Friday. Yes. No, I was just going to say that, yeah, when you do look at it that way, it's very difficult to then read the gifts passages as being open. Because um, what if you're a woman and you're given gifts that do not fit the role that you've been assigned by right. that interpretation? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, and so it's the same thing. You would, you would start yeah. with those passages in Paul, then you would go backwards, and you read everything else in light of that. Right. But I, I'm arguing that if you start with Genesis and you move forward, you don't see it. You don't see it. It's not there. I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there, I mean, what kind of sense do you have in uh, ancient Judaism or when they were the Israelites that they read and used those Genesis teachings, kind of how you talked about them? Yeah, so um, that is a big question. So the question is, did people read the passages this way, like the Genesis passage? Um, I'm convinced that, that Paul is reading them this way, actually. Like when, when we're in Galatians 3, you know, 3.28, or um, that the early church is reading them this way. I'm convinced Jesus is. Do we have an example of someone kind of laying it out theologically? No, that way, at least within Scripture. Outside of Scripture, um, 
It is not something that I have done a lot of research on, so I'm not sure I could say conclusively. Generally, you don't see them read that way. Um, and one of the things that we're going to talk about tomorrow is start bringing in um, the kind of cultural realities of the world in which these texts were not only written, but also read and interpreted. Um, and we've already started to see that a little bit with Plato and Aristotle, right? Um, and so we do not come to scripture in a vacuum, but with our lived experience. And when you're living in a world like they lived in the ancient world, um, it, it is harder to see an alternative. Um, so yeah, that, that would be the way I'd answer that. Yes? Yes. We just read in uh, Genesis of when, when um, the woman sinned. And uh, God said, she's going to have pain when she's going to give birth to the child. And, and uh, she was also told that uh, Adam will rule over her. So what does that mean, rule over her? And what does also mean when you said fully humans? Can you explain that to us or to me? And what this guy said that we are all equal. In what terms are men and women are equal? Okay, so I hear, what, what do you mean I hear a couple what does of, he mean equal? Okay, I hear a couple of different questions. Let me go backwards through the questions. One is the word equal. Yeah, I I mean I think equal is a fine word. Um, I'm I'm using um, fully human instead of equal because I don't think it's really about equality because in Christ we are called to give ourselves up for others and, and that is not necessarily like an equality sort of move or orientation. I mean, I think equal is not a bad word, um, but I, that's why I prefer fully human. Um, what I mean by fully human is that um, I as a woman am, am created as a human being. You as a man are created as a human being, fully human. Um, there is nothing in essence different about us. We have different lived experience, sure, right? And we can point to all kinds of ways in which we have different lived experience. But in our essence, in our core, in who we are, we are human beings created in the image of God, all of us. This is really profound. And I think that we, we um, I think so many of our problems stem from not recognizing the full humanity of each other. Not just male and female, but ethnicity, social class. Um, if I look back in history, injustices and oppression are rooted in a, in a, in a view that an, another person is not as human as I am. At the root, dehumanized. Yeah, a dehumanized. Now I'm not saying um, that to advocate for certain roles it is necessarily done always in an oppressive way, so don't hear me wrong. But, I, but there, there have been oppressive, many oppressive moments, unfortunately, in human history. So it is profound to recognize that another human being is as human as I am. Um, that's what I mean by fully human. Now, the other question you asked was about um, 
that your, you know, your husband will rule over you. Uh, so I think that what's happening in Genesis 3 is, is the result of, of sin. Those are consequences. That's not God saying, um, you know, this is the way it should be. You know, in the same way that God is not saying, you know, I want you always to have weeds. Don't ever take them out. Right? Like in your yard. Right? Never use any kind of, you know, never spray any vinegar or salt or Roundup or whatever you use, you know, on your weeds. Because that's the way it should be. You should have weeds. Right? I don't think God is saying to women, you should have pain in childbirth. In other words, if the doctor offers you an epidural, say no. <laughs> Right? And in fact, actually, when, um, this is an interesting fact, but when um, painkillers were first proposed for women in childbirth, there was a theological argument against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and so women are supposed to experience pain in childbirth. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think what God is saying in, in Genesis 3 is that, yeah, things are really messed up now, right? Like, the, the, the mutuality and harmony that I wanted for all of you is going to be filled with pain and suffering and weeds and uh, authority struggles. But what we see in Christ is what do we do? We give up for each other, right? We don't take authority. Jesus says something like, you know, the Gentiles lord it over you. Yes, sir, right, but that's not the way it is among you, right? Um, and so we see a restoration of this mutuality, or you know, that's the goal anyway, <laughs> um, of this mutuality. So thank you for that question. Yes? Um, you mentioned um, first Corinthians, where this is the truth of all of those gifts still exist today? Okay, so the question is, do all the gifts in First Corinthians exist today? Well, of course, this is a very controversial point, especially in Churches of Christ history, right? So some Churches of Christ would say, you know, yeah, we don't want to limit the Spirit. Of course, God can give whatever gifts God wants to give. The Spirit gives as the Spirit chooses. Other, other parts of the tradition would say things like you know, the more, whatever you want to call them, charismatic gifts, um, don't have, you know, we're a time of the, the beginning. Um, but, you know, I think that either way that you answer that question doesn't necessarily uh, impact what we're talking about today. Because I would say that the leadership gifts, you know, exhortation, leadership, um, all those, I think most, most churches of Christ would say, yeah, absolutely, those are still um, gifts that are given today. Um, you know, I, I guess if you want to say the Holy Spirit is not giving any gifts at all today, then we're, we're walking through Scripture really differently <laughs> than each other, and that's okay. But that's not the way I see it. I mean, I, I believe that, the, you know, Scripture is pretty clear that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and working and giving gifts. Yes? So, uh, this is kind of like, would you say that the goal is something like um, giving everyone an opportunity to use their God-given gifts, or what would you say like the goal is to have Two male pastors, two female pastors, oh. or something like that. Oh, yeah, like balancing. So the question is, is the goal giving everyone a chance to use their gifts, or is it like two female pastors, two male pastors? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, no, I think, I mean, I think that what I see in Scripture is that the Spirit gives, gives Christians gifts, and the community recognizes those gifts, and um, blesses those gifts by... Um, by encouraging the leadership of those people. 
Now, how the community decides to do that, I mean, there's probably lots of different ways that you could. I think anytime you would get into numbers, you'd probably run the risk of uh, circumventing the spirit there. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say for sure. But yeah, um, so I, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Yes? Well, in general, what I understand is doctrine versus doctrine, which is man-made, you know, two pastors, two, two female, two male. But what I'm understanding from what you're saying is what, what God says really about humans. And that's what you what what you are exploiting, or not exploiting, exploring for the next couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. So what is God saying about us humans in general? Right. And then yeah. sharing that church leadership as humans and not doctrine. Because I think that's what kills us is the doctrines, as you have to have two females, two males, mm -hmm. and all those things. Yeah, I think what I hear you saying is if you start to impose any kind of rule on this uh, that's too strict, then you, you risk losing the spirit of the idea of giftedness. Yeah. So we are out of time, and I want to honor the time, but I really appreciate the conversation and the questions. I hope you'll come back to talk about our gifted women um, tomorrow and then to look at our mushrooms on Friday. So have a wonderful day.